Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. All right, with Will Blackman not feeling well, it's time for another episode of Buker Friendless. And again, I know you've heard me say this before, but the timing is ideal for a couple of reasons. I don't want Will to be under the weather, and I'd rather do the show with him, but if there was ever a time I could use an entire podcast to myself, this is it. I mean, this is the one. Not only do we have some career-defining moments in both a pair of Game 7s as well as a Game 6 between the Rockets and Warriors over the weekend, but I really want to address a topic that took up my Twitter timeline courtesy of me last week. And that was my defense of Jason Kidd as a coach and the portrayal of some events in his personal life. Now, rumors are that Frank Vogel, I don't know if it's official yet, it may be by the time you listen to this, Frank Vogel being hired as the head coach of the Lakers and Jason being hired as one of his assistant coaches. I do know that when Ty Lue was up for the job and there was indications that he wanted to hire Jason Kidd, or rather the Lakers wanted him to hire Jason as one of his assistants, that Jason was certainly open to that idea. Remains to be seen if we'll see Tom Thibodeau hired as well. That was another rumor uh, of guys that were supposed to be hired by Ty Lue. In any event, I know that Jason was open to doing that with Ty, and I assume that he would be open to doing it with Frank. Now, for those who did not see my Twitter feed, let me quickly catch you up. I started out by putting out a tweet that if the Lakers were looking for an available coach who can command LeBron's respect and has developed young talent, They'd be hard-pressed to find someone more qualified than Jason. Twitter being Twitter, an array of basketball experts, imagine air quotes on that title, came out of the woodwork to let me know how wrong I was. The responses were everything from Jason didn't develop Giannis Antetokounmpo to he actually ruined Giannis as a shooter to he held back talented teams with both the Bucks and Nets to questioning how I could endorse a wife beater. Now, knocking down the inane claims about his coaching accomplishments was fairly easy. Although how and why anyone would think they know better than Giannis himself, what Jason did for him is pretty head-scratching even by Twitter standards. And let me say to start that it's my fault for trying to address a subject as deep and important as domestic violence on Twitter. 
I believe it's important that the subject is drawing more attention now than it ever has. It's why I felt compelled to talk about it here and explain why I raised the question in the first place or the subject. Look, I believe we have a long way to go as a society before it's treated, domestic violence that is, with the seriousness that it deserves. And when I asked the question, I thought about all the women in my life, my wife, my mom, my agent, my colleagues in the media, and whether I was disrespecting them or being cavalier with their well-being. Hell, I thought about Jemana Kidd, Jason's wife and the victim, who I once knew fairly well. Again, it's why I felt it important to address the subject here. It's an important one. I don't believe it's ever acceptable to hit a woman, or anyone else for that matter. And I was well aware of Jason's history. So, first half dozen times I saw someone refer to Jason as a wife beater, I let it go. Some also referred to kids' criminal history. I don't know about you, but that makes me think of someone who has spent a lifetime breaking the law. It's hard to read that going out to the whole wide world about someone I feel I know better than any of the people putting it out there. Anyway, as often happens, (laughs) my mistake was made late one night after a long day because I made the decision to address the wife beater label one time by simply asking a question. If, by all accounts, Kid was guilty of one incident 19 years ago with his ex-wife, has not had a single incident since, either with her or his current wife, should he still be referred to as a wife beater? Now, and I said it was a mistake that I put that out there. And yes, it was on Twitter. That the topic and the subject is, is being discussed, I think only good things can come out of that even if I end up being proved wrong. But I will say, yeah, it wasn't smart to put that out on Twitter. But not for the reason many on Twitter were quick to suggest. Now, plenty of people who saw my tweet were quick to say someone who kills another person is always a murderer or someone who molests a child is always a child molester. So yeah, someone who's beaten his wife is always a wife beater. It's funny, no one brought up if someone steals once, they're always a thief or crashes a car, is always a reckless driver. They went with the truly heinous things humans are capable of doing, I suppose for the shock value. In any case, I don't believe any of that to be true. I believe someone who murders someone will always have murdered someone and will always have that on their conscience. But does that, I don't believe that that makes them always a murderer. A murderer to me, identifying somebody as such, is present tense. It is who they are. And I believe people sometimes do regrettable acts due to extreme circumstances. Fear, anger, inebriation, even ignorance. Look, I'm not in any way saying we should forget what someone has done. But if they learn from it and never do it again... Should we not forgive them or at least give it the proper weight with everything else they've done? I believe people can realize what they did was wrong, especially when it's something truly horrific and take measures to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I think that there's a difference between them 
and people who repeatedly make the same mistake. Now, I'd like to think I'm not gullible. I don't presume that people will change. But I do believe it's possible. The part that was not smart on my part was not revealing how much I know about both the relationship between Jason and his ex-wife, Jemana, as well as that one incident back in 2001. I happened to sit down and talk to the two of them at their home afterward. I won't go into all the details because I don't, I don't remember all of them, but I do remember that the two were arguing while their son TJ was eating french fries. And Jason picked up one to eat. And as I recall, Jemana, in the heat of their argument, tried to slap it out of his hand and suggested that those were for TJ. And Jason reacted by slapping her. And that, to my knowledge, was the extent of it. Jemana called the police. Police came out to the house. I don't know if he was charged or arrested or taken away. I think, I believe that he was. But that was the incident. Jason was subsequently ordered to take anger management, which he did. And to this point, I've heard or seen of no other incidents. So does that fit the description, the blanket statement of someone being a wife beater. Now, some readers sent a link to an article on a website called thesmokinggun.com. I don't know how legit it is as a website. It looks like a clickbait site just based on the headlines. Bottom line, the smoking gun put out a story about Jason's allegations of cruelty against Jumana in his request for a divorce and Jumana's counter allegations of years of physical abuse. The suggestion that, and all this happened in 2007 when they were getting divorced. Now, maybe it's cynical on my part, but I took that whole story as a he said, she said battle, and that it had more to do with the split and the divorce and how they were divvying up things and angling for leverage and all of that. That's That was my take, that they were both throwing dirt at each other. And I know Jason went through the anger management program after that incident. And I spent a fair amount of time around the kids while they were together before and after the incident. I went out to dinner with them. Uh, happened to, it's going to sound weird, but I surfed with both of them in Puerto Rico and Hawaii. And I never saw or heard any indications that there was more physical abuse. Certainly not to the level that the smoking gun piece suggested. Now, I'm not saying that I know everything, and I'm not saying that it's not possible that stuff was going on that I was not privy to. I'm just saying from my experience, everything that I know, uh, and I feel as if I know Jason's history. Look, he hasn't always been a prince. I've written about it. There was a time when Getting physical when he was angry with a man or a woman was fully within his capabilities. It happened. I'm not even sure how much of a prince he is now. But I know he's mellowed. That's for sure. And I also believe that refusing to distinguish between people who do something awful once and do it over and over again is not only not fair, I'm not even sure it's healthy. 
I don't believe a permanent scarlet letter is a deterrent of behavior. If anything, what's the point of changing your behavior if you're going to be forever viewed as someone you once were or someone who once did something? Now, I, I'm really uneasy. It, sounds, it may sound weird. I'm, I'm more nerve, uneasy about speaking on child molestation than I am about you know, killing somebody because that just strikes me as a mental illness as much as anything. Uh, but I don't believe everyone who commits murder is and always will be a murderer. If you believe that people never change, well, I've experienced different. I've seen people do some stupid stuff when they were under the influence of a substance or an emotion. I know people who were sick in a variety of ways who got well. And someone wrote, wrote back to me in the midst of all this, so where do you draw the line? That's a good question. My simplest answer, some of you are not going to like this. You can't. There is no hard and fast way to define a human being. Look, we all have our standards. If this happened, I would never forgive this. I don't even know if that's true. Until we're in the heat of the moment, until all the circumstances unfold, I don't know that it's possible to ever say anything that finite. But if we were holding a line, there's a line. You cross it, whatever it is, you don't come back. If we did after one act, as some suggested we should, then I don't know the kid should have ever had the opportunity to win a championship as he did with the Dallas Mavericks or coach the Nets or the Bucks. Hiring a wife beater, signing a wife beater? Is that something that anybody should do? Uh, for that matter, Mike Budenholzer, current coach of the Bucks, who got my coach of the year vote, had a DUI. That's just as dangerous. Should he have been hired by the Bucks? Here's the other part to defining anyone with one title. Inspired by the worst thing they've ever done. To be fair, don't we have to do that with everybody? The guy who won the Masters this year, Tiger Woods. Shouldn't he have been identified as a philandering drug addict? Should a philandering drug addict be allowed to compete in an as august event as the Masters? Who cares if he's no longer cheating in his relationships or he's no longer taking drugs or... I mean, it's what he did, right? Or Michael Vick, who I've had a chance to talk at length with. He's a dog killer. End of story. Doesn't matter that he has seen the error of his ways, that he's taking care of dogs, that he's supporting the care of animals. No, Michael Vick, you're a dog killer. It just seems so final and damning and judgmental. And I can't help but think the way we talk in glowing terms of forefathers of our country about how brave and ingenious they were in creating the Declaration of Independence. But they were also adulterers and slave owners in many cases. So shouldn't we be looking at them in that, in that light as well? Again, I'm just saying, we apply it evenly. I don't know that anybody gets out clean. Now, 
all of that is, I couldn't put in a tweet. Can't fit in 280 characters. But it, all of that is what made me question if it's fair. If Jason's mistreatment of an ex-wife with one slap 18 years ago, it was fair to tag him as a wife beater for the rest of his life. Maybe it is. I'm open to someone convincing me. All I know is, as of right now, it just doesn't feel like it. All right, on to the real basketball topics. And thank you for indulging me. This is what I find amusing about my business in particular and the reaction of sports fans in general. And if I sound salty uh, in this particular podcast, I was up late last night helping my kids with their homework because they both had writing assignments. And it took a little bit more time than I expected. And I'm a little salty about the fact that I wonder where I draw that line on how much should I help them? How much should I let them just flounder on their own? And how is it that I am in the business of writing and using words and my kids, <laughs> my kids are, I, I don't know, I can't, it's hard for me to compare to what every other kid, high school kid out there, but um, they're not killing it when it comes to composition right now. Let's just put it that way. They have some talent, but the uh, the focus and understanding of how hard it is to put words together seems to be lost, which may be part of our issue with social media as well. The, the value and the importance and the honoring, the meaning of words and what they convey in how we put them together. But anyway, this is what I find amusing about my business in particular and the reaction of sports fans in general. How black and white everyone wants to make everything. And no, I'm not talking about the J Kid situation anymore. I'm talking about the playoffs and the and the results over the weekend. Either Steph Curry is great or he sucks. KD, if he is the best player in the league, well, then he has to be the best player on the Warriors to think anything else is nonsensical, right? Even though it's not. James Harden is the greatest scorer the league has ever seen. I saw that. I saw that written, talked about, endorsed over the course of the season. But now the Rockets get knocked out of the second round and suddenly, oh, he's not. He's actually a choker. Look, I know it makes for an endless stream of headlines and conversations, but if we ever really tracked all the superlatives, good and bad, that were put out there and kept everyone's, attached everyone's name to all of it and applied that to the various sports subjects over just a seven-month period, a, a three-month period, maybe even within, within 30 days. We'd all look like lunatics. I don't know if it would stop us from doing it, but maybe it might reveal just how ridiculous some of this conversation is, the extremes to which we go. So here's the truth. Steph Curry didn't have a good game six overall. Can we say that? He ended up being the hero. He ended up being anointed, as did the Warriors. They don't need KD, which is, again, one game against a Rockets team that lost in somewhat the same way a year ago. Really? That's, that's the conclusion we're going to reach. Look, even down the stretch, Steph made some painful mistakes. This is the one thing he did not do. 
He didn't stop playing. He didn't let the mistakes preempt him. He never stopped trying to do what he does best, which is score the basketball. And that sounds easy, but it might just be the hardest thing to do in sports or anything. I know this is going to sound a little silly, but how many crossword puzzles have you abandoned? How many times have you swept the floor and there's that crumb or piece of lint stuck in a crevice you can't quite reach or it just won't come out or whatever it is? And you, How many times have you said, in so many things, you know what, that's good enough. And this decision to either continue to press the issue or not, it's not something that numbers can quantify. In fact, numbers fail to paint the true picture entirely. Now, if that's hard to grasp, for most fans, I assume it's because they've never been on that stage. And to be honest, neither have I. But I've been up close to it. And I've talked to those who have been on the stage enough to know what they're thinking and feeling when they're on it. And because I've been on much smaller athletic stages, I have feel I've been able to ask the questions that need to be asked to know what it is that they were dealing with and what they what they felt and how they fought through it. I've, you know, uh, just, I don't know if I should even go into this. Look, I made a penalty kick with time expired and a streak of league championships on the line. I'll never forget how that felt. Walking up there. had I'd had mixed results uh, when it came to, uh, to penalty kicks. I was <laughs> team's leading scorer, Penalty kicks, I'd missed a few key ones. In fact, there was a point where we, we had a tryout. and went from I was the guy to let's see how everybody does. And I ended up winning the competition on the team. So I still got to do it. But I've had a shot blocked that could have meant a run deeper in the playoffs than ever before. And when I walked up, I walked up with a plan. I walked up with a plan that I had worked on, but... Did I know I was going to make it? No. Was I scared that I was going to miss it? Fine line. Fine line. I had just a little more confidence that I was going to make it than I was going to miss it. But I will tell you one thing. I wanted to be the guy taking it. For whatever I was feeling going through my body, I wanted that. But look, I've been in other instances, and some of it depends on the team you're on, what your role is. I fought the desire not to make another mistake by not making another attempt or by being careful, deferring to someone else because, hey, maybe it's their day since it's not mine. But that doesn't work in sports and that certainly, certainly does not work in the pros at the highest levels of the NBA or I believe in any professional sport. When you're the star and you've been the star all year, Deciding to take the day off or a play off is desertion. Your job is not to look for someone else. It's to look for an answer. It's to figure it out. You literally take your best shot and live with the results. Making the proverbial right basketball play is doing what you've been relied on to do all season. I think some fans equate making the right basketball play with being unselfish, giving the ball to an open teammate. Well, no. Not if that teammate has no track record or experience at succeeding in that situation. Not if you haven't given that 
ball or that situation. You haven't put that teammate, you haven't trusted them in that situation before. Kobe with Derek Fisher is the first thing that comes to mind. Kobe never hesitated to give to Derek. You know why? Because they came up together, coming off the bench. And long before he was looking to him, long before Derek Fisher hit that shot against the Orlando Magic in the finals, Kobe had trusted Derek. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And it's seen him come through. Other than that, it's a bad decision. Especially if it's made by a star who does have that experience. Which brings me to... Nerd basketball, as some NBA players past and present are referring to it. Nerd basketball is taking a beating right now. Whether it's trusting the process of purposely losing in Philly to acquire lots of lottery picks and thinking that's all it takes to build a championship team, or translating basketball, the game of basketball, into an efficiency quotient chart in Houston and thinking that playing the game more efficiently is going to end up with more wins and a championship. In any event, those who contend the system can be successfully gamed with a calculator are getting a dose of reality. To which I can only say, thank God. Now, don't misunderstand. I love what Sam Hinkie tried to do. Same goes for Daryl Morey. I'm down with anyone who takes a crack at breaking convention. We're all smarter as a result. Because new ground broken is new ground revealed. What I can do without are those who take their appreciation for all that too far. Who anoint the new idea as the grand solution. Before anything has been accomplished. The unequivocal shaming of anyone who doesn't immediately embrace and champion that the novel approach is sure to produce a champion. Now break down all the videotape you want. Crunch all the numbers you want. But the reason the Rockets lost Game 6 to the Warriors, despite the absence of Kevin Durant, is because their best players made too many mistakes, particularly at the defensive end. Not the offensive end, not in the iso ball, the defensive end. The Warriors, in some ways, forced those mistakes. They played fast. Faster than they could have if Steve Kerr didn't use his bench more than he had all series long. Through the first five games of the series, only two subs logged double-digit minutes in four of those first five games. And he never used more than three players uh, or gave them double-digit minutes on the floor. And when double-digit, I mean, we're talking like 10 to 20. Uh, in all of those first five games, the bench never provided more than 50 minutes of playing time in any one game total. In game six, Kerr had five bench players get double-digit playing time, and he got a total of 80 minutes overall out of his bench. That's an extra 
half hour. And most important, he got away with it. <laughs> if he hadn't, I guarantee you, people would have been questioning the coaching acumen of Steve Kerr. But it was an idea. It was a wrinkle. It was looking and trusting that his players might be able to get it done. Who knows? Maybe he would have pulled the leash. Maybe he wouldn't have stayed with the idea. But the fact of the matter is, he got away for long stretches with having Alfonso McKinney, Quinn Cook, and Jonas Jarepko on the floor with Clay Thompson and Steph Curry. The Rockets' best players didn't punish the Warriors for playing Cook and Jarepko and Andrew Bogut and even Jordan Bell. They allowed them to play the Rockets even, almost even. Chris Paul was given a pass for his performance in Game 6 because his offensive numbers were respectable. Ignoring that he made mistakes on D that a player of his caliber should not make. The truth is, Houston did not play with the requisite energy and urgency necessary. You could see it from the very beginning. All those offensive rebounds, nobody took more advantage of it than Kevon Looney. Is Kevon Looney a special player? He was in game six. The Rockets made him one. Because was he doing anything other than playing hard? You tell me. Same could be said for the 76ers, including Jimmy Butler. Defensive mistakes. An array of offensive rebounds where I saw the entire Sixers team. Jimmy, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, Tobias Harris, all standing flat-footed. It's one thing if you don't end up with the ball. That happens. But when you're looking to someone else to make that hustle play, no matter who you are, that's a problem. In a game as meaningful as a Game 7, or in the case of the Rockets, an elimination Game 6, Denver Nuggets, Nikola Jokic, same thing. And that's not, look, it's not hating. I can appreciate them as players, and I acknowledge that they didn't bring what was necessary. And it wasn't a skill thing. It was an effort thing. Look, mistakes are part of every game. It's the moments when a player doesn't go to help on defense or blows a chance by hesitating on offense that I have yet to see a measurement for. And yet to me, those are the most costly. You turn the ball over trying to be aggressive, trying to hit a guy on a, on a fast break. You know what? What it tells that guy is, if you run hard, you're going to get the ball. So he's going to run hard again. If you don't go for a rebound, if you don't rotate quickly, if you look for somebody else to close out, what it tells your teammates is, you're looking for somebody else to do the hard work. Those are two distinct messages different messages that have a different impact on a team. Now, some might suggest that Curry had an awful first half because he didn't score and he was in foul trouble. But why was he in foul trouble? Because he was working his ass off on defense. Now imagine for a moment if James Harden or Chris Paul had played with a notable fury on defense, even if it got him into foul trouble. I mean, in some part, Chris Paul did and was still didn't account for a lot of the mistakes he made. And that's, again, where we, you know, we assess, we have all of these stats and analytics to assess how a guy is performing offensively, and we put a lot of focus on that. 
But our ability to judge what is good and bad defense may be the most naive that I've seen. People look simply at, oh, if a guy goes by another guy, oh, he's a bad defender. Mm, Not necessarily. Depends on what the strategy is, what the, the game plan is. And, okay, that happened one time. What does he do the rest of the time? And did he stay beat? Or did he rotate to the next open guy? Expecting that there was going to be a teammate that was going to step up. Because let me tell you a little secret. Nobody, but nobody, can stop a player all by themselves. The great players are not even looking at the guy in front of them. They figure, oh, I got him. I can take him. I'm looking at where the second and third defenders are. Because if they're where they're supposed to be, then that's going to force me to do something different. I can't get to where I want to get to. Or maybe I need to rotate or we need to do something else. Now, just imagine, imagine, particularly Harden. If Harden had come out and Harden had played, put all his energy into playing defense or getting a loose ball, imagine the signal or the message that would have sent the rest of the team. Think about Damian Lillard and his dive for a loose ball. You know, it sounds quaint, but the fact of the matter is those little plays matter even if you don't come up with the ball. Now, you can't not come up with the ball too many times. <laughs> that can work the other way. But trying at least sends the signal to everybody else. If your best player is trying that hard, regardless of what his level of success is, it means everybody else has to try that hard. Clint Capella, Austin Rivers, Gerald Green, you think if, if Harden had come out and expended that energy on the defensive end, you don't think that wouldn't have changed the way those guys approached it? But he didn't, and they didn't. They allowed that to be P.J. Tucker's role, which is always his role. Curry, with all his physical issues, played throughout the series as if he believed he was capable of stopping Harden or whoever he happened to be guarding, that he was going to give it his all. And look, he could have easily made the executive decision, particularly in game six. That's not what I do. I need to conserve my energy for scoring, especially because we don't have KD. Totally understandable. But he didn't. He played as if no matter what he was doing, he needed to be fully committed and engaged in order for the Warriors to win. Because you know what? He did. Speaking of not being fully committed or engaged, That applies to Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. And although it's harder to judge with a coach, I'd put Brett Brown in that camp too. Now, Embiid often moves like someone whose feet or knees are aching. So it's hard to know if his lack of aggression in Game 7 was because of some physical limitation or just frozen in the moment or thought he was working harder than he was. But at least, you know, some, some ailment, considering how... This offseason has gone for him and his history. That's a possibility. All we know is he simply was not as impactful as we know he's capable of being. Now, what was wrong with Ben Simmons? That's less clear. There were sideline reports during the game that he was engaged in a way he normally is not. And that wasn't apparent in the way he played. 
It's what makes him a dangerous player to have if you're a coach. He shows you flashes of what he's capable of. And those flashes, there's some statistic he had the other day that Magic's the last one to do that in a playoff game. When a guy does something like that, an owner or GM is naturally going to wonder, okay, so why isn't he giving us that all the time? What is it about how he's being coached or utilized that we're not getting that all the time? Because there must be a reason other than the guy just chooses not to give it to you all the time, which is the heart of often what it really is. Now, can certain coaches find a way to get the most out of a guy? Yes, but that's a sliding scale. And if the guy doesn't want to give it to you, I don't know what there is that can be said at the pro level. Guy's already got his money. He's already secure, more secure than a coach. He doesn't have to give it. And that's the, the speculation by an owner or a GM in terms of why aren't we getting this all the time. That's what leads to getting fired, which I've heard from various league sources and I've been hearing it for weeks. Could very well happen to Brown, which is, uh, I don't know, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, in one, on one hand, he has had an extraordinary run, what he went through with Sam Hinkie, and then found a way to coach this team and get them to believe and get them to play hard and do everything that he's done. I mean, it's, it's been impressive. For what he's gone through, I'd like to believe he deserves better. But I also believe that with all of that, he's going to get another crack. And considering the mixed bag that he has, who knows? <laughs> Maybe there's a place better for him. All I'll say is he looked like a man resigned to his fate in Game 7. Has looked like that for the uh, last part of the series, actually. And maybe he was simply trying to be composed in the biggest pressure situation his players have ever experienced because he's been through far more with the Spurs. He's seen it all. All I can say is there was something missing from Brett Brown, the Brett Brown that I know. If he was a video game character, his life force meter would have been reading at somewhere around 30%. Now, there's also a lot being made about Joel Embiid being in tears after the game. And not just in tears, but blubbering. I think that's probably the most accurate description of what I saw Joel Embiid doing. And blubbering sounds like something that a kid does. So it's not flattering. But I'll tell you what. At least I knew how he felt following that loss. At least I knew how he took it personally. And that he truly did expect more out of this season. He truly did think that the 76ers were going to the conference finals. And by the way, for those of you scoring at home, those of you who trusted the process, you were a second round and out team before the process started, before you lost for four years in a row, purposely. As of now, the last two years running, you're a second round and out team. So, congratulations. Look, I have no doubt that Embiid is going to be mocked on social media for being seen blubbering on his way to the locker room after the loss. But give me a guy who cares that much any day of the week. Simmons, on the other hand, very well may have felt the loss just as deeply. But there's no way to tell. And that's a problem. A team should know its leader or leaders care about winning, especially in an organization such as the Sixers, where not that long ago, 
winning was not valued. And maybe Simmons' teammates can read him well enough to know. Or maybe he has demonstrated that he cares in other ways. But I keep coming back to the fact that he can't or won't shoot from outside of the paint. That's just one element to his game that has not evolved. To me, developing a trusty jumper shows you care in a way that all the passionate words in the world can't. He's had three years in the pros now to do it. And I haven't seen a lick of improvement. That, to me, is is damning. And I'm not even going to go back to LSU. The fact that he had time to develop a shot in college. I mean, Donovan Mitchell, just for comparison, was not a good shooter coming out of college either. Look at him now. All right. Last item. Kawhi Leonard's game-winning shot that bounced on the rim four times before falling. What an amazing shot. I don't know that, I mean, obviously the touch, the arc, there's a lot that went into that, that allowed that shot to go in, in spite of not being on the mark. But here we go again. Now I'm reading that he's more clutch than Kobe Bryant. He's better than Michael Jordan. That's what I've read. That's what I've heard. Come on, people. Why do we do this? Kawhi, like MJ, like Curry, like Kobe, like Kyrie, like countless guys I can think of over the course of NBA history, is and was totally unafraid to take the game-deciding shot. In this instance, he made it. Unlikely as it was, it went in. Now, is that, is that the definition of clutch? The basic definition as a verb is grasping something eagerly. That's it. Nothing about success or failure. And obviously there is the sports version of that. We think of clutch as not only eagerly grasping the situation. Well, actually, some of you don't. Some of you just think it's a matter of, did it work out or did it not? (laughs) And I think the definition of eagerly grasping the opportunity, wanting that opportunity, I think that is part of being clutch. In fact, I really think that's the only part of being clutch. Because coming down to figuring out how many of those so-called clutch shots or uh, crunch time shots you took and made, there are so many variables to that to suggest that one guy is more clutch than another guy based on results. And I know that's going to sound funny, but based on results doesn't take into account all the variables, which matter. It matters. It matters what a guy was up against. Look, I can name at least four guys still alive in the playoffs right now. Actually, more. I can I can name a half dozen guys still alive in the playoffs right now who have eagerly grasped the opportunity to be the hero in situations and have both succeeded and failed multiple times in big moments. KD, Steph, Clay Thompson, Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum, Kawhi, Kyle Lowry, Eric Bledsoe, Chris Middleton, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Look, Kawhi overcame an otherwise bad shooting night to hit a shot that was arguably worse than Lillard's 37-footer to beat the Thunder. But he made it, and it advanced his team to the Eastern Conference Finals. 
And on that shot, he's now more clutch than Kobe? Because I didn't hear any of this being suggested prior to Game 7. At least not as widely as it is seemingly being discussed now. It's as if this was the final stamp on something that some people brought up. Which again, is a, it's just a goofy... It's a goofy subject to, to try to come up with a finite answer. And by the way, for the record, Kawhi doesn't do half of the things that Michael Jordan did, tangibly or otherwise. Is he a great two-way player? Yes. Not a great help defender, but on the ball, pretty damn good. Is he physically more imposing than Jordan? Absolutely. So is LeBron. But if Kawhi misses a game winner against the Bucs and Giannis buries one, is Giannis then more clutch than Kobe and Kawhi? Look, we all can have who we'd like to take a last second shot with the game on the line. We all can have that guy that we say, that's the guy I believe in the most. That's preference. That's way different than anointing someone as more worthy of taking that shot than anyone else. Because part of it is we're looking at that guy in the prism of who he's playing with and who he's playing against. If you really wanted to make it definitive, you'd have to take all these guys and put them in an array of situations, different teammates, different circumstances. Only by doing that could you determine who is the most clutch. Who you like, who you'd want shooting for you, where you'd like him shooting, all well and good. That actually, that I find that interesting. But to try to tell me that someone, hey, you know what? This guy just proved he's more clutch than someone else. It's laughable. It's laughable. Especially at this point in Kawhi's career. You want to compare Kobe and Michael, again, different teams, different different eras, different situations, different circumstances. But we haven't even seen the full width of Kawhi's career. Who knows? Kawhi misses some shots. He suddenly gets the yips. Look, that confidence, that can come and go for sure. But saying who you prefer... That's way different than anointing someone as more worthy of taking that shot than anyone else. The best at taking that shot. Because the shots are all different. Remember what I said about keeping track of all our pronouncements and looking like lunatics if we actually made a list of them? Let's not add to the list. At least not right now. All right. That does it for this edition of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends, part of the United Wecast Network. In the next podcast, I will hopefully be joined by a recovered Will Blackman, and we will talk about the luckiest clutch moments he ever witnessed in the NFL, as well as my list from the NBA before we preview the upcoming Eastern-Western Conference Finals matchups. Uh, Don't forget, we need a handful of ratings on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And once we have those, we will have a drawing for the latest prizes that we have. And then we'll start another one and we'll give out more prizes. But we need to get to, I believe we're at 90-something on, uh, on iTunes. And we need to get to 100. So 
even if you want to make up some <laughs> some additional accounts and give yourself more more shots at winning i'm good with that just get us to 100 get us to 100 uh screenshot the review and send it to at Buker friends and then you'll be eligible to win and then we can proceed and we can give you something because we like doing that in the meantime as always thanks for listening planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.